Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 589 of the Survival Podcast. It is January 18th, 2011. It is a Tuesday. We have an awesome show today. I mean, absolutely awesome. And I'm excited, and you can tell I'm excited, because Chef Keith Snow is back here today. He's going to talk to us about cooking with your preps, cooking with wheat, cooking with dehydrated vegetables, cooking with fish and game from the field, cooking with one of my favorite things to grow in the garden that, you know, is kind of unique, and you don't really find a lot of people using it, which is Swiss chard. i got some great stuff for you today with Keith. I'm excited because I know he's going to make me hungry. I'm going to want to go out and, and, and do some cooking when this show's over. I promise you, you are going to be salivating by the end of today's show, and you're going to be doing it over a lot of the stuff that you store just in case times get tough, because he's going to teach you how to use it every day to make awesome things to eat in your everyday life. Nutritious, healthy, and affordable. Uh, that's what we're going to learn about today. Before we do that, though, let's take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to make sure that the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, even when I'm away. Like this week, I'm not even here. I'm up at the bug out location laying floor. I did this show a week in advance for you. So, you know, the sponsors are a big part. You guys, the members, and the sponsors are what makes that happen. So take care of those sponsors because they are taking care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Uh, one of the just really great companies out there, small company, uh, you know, run by you know an entrepreneur that just started something on a dream one day and made it happen, and well thought of. All the uh, the blade making forms, knife making forms, just love these guys, and that's because they provide everything you need to make knives. Whether you're a novice like me or a, a master bladesmith, everything from kind of a snap together kit that needs some finish work and sharpening and things to raw materials for that master bladesmith. And if you're part of the MSB, you get a 10% discount on everything they sell. So uh, check out KnifeKits.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtack is a great company because they let you live that cool, tactical lifestyle, right? Everything from Magpul magazines to Maxpedition bags and everything you can think of from the tactical aspect of life to live, live that tactical life, you'll find at Sawtooth Tactical, another company that gives you a great discount if you're part of the member support brigade. Uh, next up today, uh, one more day after today left to win a free copy of the book Lights Out, hand autographed by author David Crawford. The way you'll win today, you'll go to David's website, which is lightsoutthebook.com. There will be a link in today's show notes, lightsoutthebook.com. This runs through midnight today. If you're listening to this on Wednesday or Thursday, it's too late. Don't bother. Send an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. You need to put a code word in the subject line. You find the code word on this site. There's a header. The header is the part that stays the same no matter what. In there is a, um, a, a an excerpt from the book, a, a, a quote from the book. And the very first word of that excerpt is a character's name, first name of a man. Um, I need that man's name in the subject line, just that name, then your name and your shipping address in the body of the email. One person will be randomly selected to win a, a copy of the book by David, and I will give away two 
uh, one-year member support brigade memberships as well uh, in that. Again, one more day after today. Tomorrow will be the last day to play to win, and uh, you might not hear from me till the end of the week whether you've won or not because I am away this week. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. I mentioned a couple discounts you get there, saw tack and knife kits, lots of other great discounts. And if you think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, that's basically what $50 a year comes out to, is 20 cents an episode to support the show. And then you get the discounts, you get over $100 worth of free ebooks, you get some great videos that are available nowhere else. So consider joining the MSB. And with that, as I was saying, uh, during, you know, the, the, the beginning of the housekeeping, we are fortunate today to have Chef Keith Snow with us today. Uh, hey, Keith, thanks for joining us once again on the Survival Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jack. I definitely uh, appreciate being on. Well, cool. Hey, uh, I know I've had you on a few times. We had you on for the Thanksgiving episode, which, by the way, um, we had tremendous feedback from that. We had you on once before to talk about cooking you know, with healthy eating stuff from your backyard. But some of the folks may not have heard those episodes. Uh, so could you give us you know, the, uh, the, the, the one- to two-minute uh, synopsis background? Who's Chef Keith Snow, and how would you end up uh, doing something a little bit different than, I guess, uh, most of your uh, restaurant, uh, what would you call them, your, uh, your, your brethren? Oh, Yeah, your cohorts. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Colleagues. What are you know? Your colleagues are out there, right? And they're plating up stuff in these uh, expensive restaurants. You used to do that, and now you kind of do the same type of thing I do, and you're out spreading the message about fresh eating. How'd that happen? Yeah, well, it's a uh, 25-year it, career, basically. Started cooking when I was really young, uh, about 14 years old in New Jersey, and um, worked my way up the chain, so to speak, from dishwasher all the way up to executive chef of a big ski resort in, in the mountains of Colorado. And throughout all of those years, I, uh, I studied finance and economics in college. I was an ice hockey player, and I cooked, you know, to keep beer in the fridge and money in the pocket, so to speak. I only really got serious about my career probably in the last 10 years or so. And um, what happened with us is when we were – out in Colorado when I was uh, executive chefing, um, we wound up having our first daughter. And it was so cold. We lived at 10,000 feet. I didn't want to raise her in that perpetual winter. So um, having grown up around farms, I come from the Northeast and my family, uh, we had dairy farms and uh, some of my uncles raised horses. So we had pretty agrarian lifestyle. And I wanted to raise my kids in a farming type of atmosphere. So I actually flew to North Carolina just uh, near the Asheville area. I found a farm property. It was just, you know, vacant land. I bought it. We uh, moved there in 2003. We built a barn, and then we started to get into gardening and grass-fed beef, and we had chickens and dairy goats. And this was at a time when everybody was in interested in, in the whole low-carb stuff. But we went, uh, my wife and I, just head forth into you know, local cooking and seasonal cooking. And it really, it defined my, uh, my culinary style. Because before that, I, w I was, um, you know, into all kinds of ethnic foods. And, you know, I've got some classic French training. But um, local foods and seasonal cooking was not all that popular. But that's really what I decided, you know, really fit for me. And one thing led to another. And I put up a website and started, you know, getting great response from people literally all over the world. We've got members in 140 countries. And started putting up my recipes, and then in 06, I started shooting uh, culinary videos. Uh, I published my first cookbook, 
with a company called Running Press is my publisher in 09. It's called The Harvest Eating Cookbook. It's got about 200 recipes in it. You know, it's available everywhere. And, um, you know, this thing has really taken off, and the website Harvest Eating is just growing very fast. And like you mentioned, I'm a podcaster like you, and and uh, just focused on teaching people how to live a sustainable life, you know, using local and seasonal food. So that's that's the elevator speech, man. Well, that's an excellent one, and uh, that's why I've had you on the show in the past. While I'll have you on the show in the future, honestly, um, because there's a lot of folks out there that are getting into gardening and they're cooking or they're growing things that you don't buy generally in the grocery store. You, they don't you don't see them there, or even now that they're starting to come in. We're going to talk about chardon a little bit because I asked you about that. And you get some ideas for it. Um, you know, people are seeing in the grocery store now; it's kind of taken off, but they don't know what the heck to do with it. Um, and there's all of these things that people store. So the folks, the reason we have Keith on today is to talk about, you know, taking your, 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 your gruel up a notch, let's say, you know, and actually enjoying it. So all the stuff that we store and all the stuff that we grow, we can actually enjoy it, uh, and use it. And let's start out with wheat. Cause I know I've got preppers out there that have like buckets and buckets and buckets of hard wheat. And hopefully they've got a grinder too, and a grinder that'll grind and a grinder that will crack, uh, cause eating wheat berries out of a bucket break your teeth. But a lot of them I think have no idea what to do with that stuff. It's just there in case, you know, and actually it's one of the great foods. I mean, you talk about low carb in the past and grains have gotten a bad rap as of late, but to me what should be getting a bad rap is bleached, uh, nutrient deficient white flour. Whole grains are a great source of uh, nutrients and protein and, and carbohydrate, good carbs. So what should folks be doing with that big, massive pile of wheat other than waiting for Armageddon? Yeah, those are great points, Jack, uh, all of them that you made there. And, you know, one of the things that, that I see, you know, not just with wheat, but, you know, people are worried about what's, what's going to happen with the economy and definitely your audience, you know, preparing, saving food, um, making sure that if something does go wrong, they're they're going to be in a good position. But I think one of the critical mistakes is for people to, like you said, store buckets of grain or have bags of dehydrated vegetables or frozen this or that and not know how to cook with it. To me, uh, one of the things that I'm really trying to do with my audience is make sure that people are becoming proficient cooks and using these things because, you know, God forbid something something happens, you don't want to all of a sudden be in a position where you don't know what to do with these things. And you mentioned wheat. A lot of people don't even know what a wheat berry is. So your audience is probably uh, a lot smarter than the average people. And they've got these wheat berries in storage. And the reason that they're whole like that is because once you grind wheat or just about any grain, it's it's really going to go bad quick. So they're, they're generally stored in, um, you know, five-gallon buckets with mylar. As a matter of fact, I just got a five-gallon bucket just the other day. And there's a lot of things that can be done with wheat. And for sure, what I'd like to see people do is become proficient at using it. And a couple of ideas, like you mentioned, you definitely need a grinder because if you try to take those wheat berries and, you know, put them in a coffee grinder, you're not really going to get a complete grind. You're going to have some you know, flour or powdery mixture, but then you're going to have a lot of cracked grains, which are going to give you kind of a weird texture. But I would definitely invest in a grinder, but there's a lot of things that can be done with wheat. And first of all, I want to start out with um, some cereals. Now, you can take 
whole wheat berries. You don't even need to grind it. And you can take your wheat berries and you can cook them and make a cereal out of them, like a hot cereal. They take a while to cook. And these things, this isn't 10 minutes. They're going to take, you know, 35, 45 minutes, something like that, to become tender. But what I like to do is to, to take, let's say you take a couple of cups, and we'll provide the listeners some recipes um, to use, but let's say you take a couple of cups of these wheat berries. You can put them in a pot, and this is where you definitely want a tight-fitting lid. And you can make a mixture of water, and I like to use whole milk, with a teeny bit of sugar, and you cook these things down. And this is a great thing to do as far as being prepared for uh, breakfast. You can make a whole pot of these uh, wheat berries. And once they're cooked down, they're going to release quite a bit of uh, gelatinous material. They want to thicken up, sort of like oats. If you cook oats, you'll kind of find they, they get a little gluey. Um, so is the that, is that the gluten cook- that you're seeing come out yeah. when you do that? Right. That's the, that's the gluten, and it tends to, um, to thicken it up a bit. But making these hot cereals like that, once you have it cooked, um, as far as storing it, you can take it and portion it up into um, things that can be frozen, whether it be plastic bags or little um, Ziploc freezable containers. You can store it for later, but just having it for breakfast is incredible. What I like to do is you mentioned that it's whole grain. It's got a load of nutrition in it because the grain is intact, the bran, the endosperm, really all of the nutrition is in the part that's usually removed. And, you know, people use a lot of, like you mentioned, just white flour. Most of the nutrition is taken out of that. But these wheat berries, they are an unbelievable energy source. And what I like to do is once I have them cooked down, and we like to pre-cook a whole pot of them, then we keep it in the refrigerator, you can take it out, and uh, let's just say you've got them cold or already cooked. You take them out, and you put them into a soft pot, put a half a cup of milk, bring it up to a boil to reheat it, and then you put it in a bowl. I like to put a dollop of uh, full-fat Greek yogurt and, like, a teaspoon of maple syrup on there. And you've got just an unbelievable breakfast. And people that haven't tried wheat berries, they same thing with steel-cut oats. They have a really nutty flavor. It's very, uh, very flavorful. It's got a great texture. And, you know, right now, obviously, we're in the middle of the winter. I couldn't think of a better food for breakfast because, not only is it warm, it's filling, but it does have a lot of sustained energy. And you had mentioned, you know, the carbohydrates and all there. When you when you eat that, it's going to fuel you for a good long time because you've got the bran and the endosperm. All of that nutrition in the whole grain is going to keep you going for hours. It's not going to be that, you know, if you have like a, a bowl of cornflakes or something, you're, you're going to get that quick little burst, but in 40 minutes, you're going to feel hungry. You're going to have kind of a like a, a caffeine crash, so to speak. But when you eat these wheat berries like that, these hot cereals, you can have a nice, long, sustained, uh, full feeling, and they're just so nutritious. And that, that's definitely one way to, to cook with them. Have you ever done that yourself? Absolutely. And I was going to uh, want to point a couple things out. One, the reason you get that sustained energy there is because it's what uh, – you know, nutritionist and, and well-known author Tim Ferriss would call a slow carb. So the carbohydrate is there. If there's a certain number of grams of carbohydrate there or a certain number of grams of carbohydrate in a, in a cornflake, the same number of carbs are there. It's the body has to do work to access it. 
So it's almost like taking a time-released uh, capsule versus a, a pill that just dissolves and goes in your system instantly. You get that sustainment over time, and that way you don't get peaks in your blood sugar. So you're not going to get real fat eating this. I mean, people have gotten this carb thing on their mind where if I eat carbs, I'm going to get fat. And if you go look at the, the, the places where people live on grains like this, there are not a lot of fat people running around. Um, the yeah, other thing I wanted to point out to folks while we're listening here, um, a great place to go and get a small amount of this to try these things with before you buy a 50-pound sack or get your 50-pound sack shipped to you is Honeyville Grains. And uh, for those in the, the brigade, you guys get a discount there of 10%, so make sure you get your discount. Uh, but I'm going to have Keith keep going on here and tell you some other things you can do with wheat. But if you're not sure on something and you're not sure you're going to like it, you know, go out and get a couple pounds of it in a, in a can and try these recipes, figure out how much of it you're going to actually use, and then stock up based on, and that's why we have Keith on today, to give you these ways to actually use this stuff. So you want to give them some other things they can do with it? And, I mean, what you're talking about is great. Another thing I've done real quick is if I want to make a little bit of like what you're talking about and I don't want to sit there on the stove with it, I'll take like a real thick insulated thermos bottle, throw some wheat in there, boil some water, dump that in the thermos bottle, put the lid on it, and let it sit overnight. And you wake up in the morning and it's perfectly cooked. And, uh, yeah, no, that's a great idea. But I've never, I've never tried like what you're saying, like throw some yogurt and some, uh, uh, maple syrup on there. That, that, that kind of to take it up and I, sometimes I throw fruit on there. But the thing that that made me think of too is we got a lot of beekeepers. I'm sure that honey would just go awesome with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, honey on top of Greek yogurt is a very classic combination. But like you were getting into the fruits, you know, putting, Think seasonal, like the wheat is a staple. You'll have it year-round, but, um, you know, if you're in the summer, you could put things like peaches on there. If you're in the middle of the winter, I like to put prunes and raisins and pears, uh, things like that. But um, another thing that you can do with that, I'll, I'll switch gears from a, a hot breakfast. I'm going to stay with the theme of using the whole wheat berry. And your point of the sustained energy release is really critical because, like you said, it doesn't give you that huge spike in your blood sugar, so it's perfect for, you know, maintaining your health. But I like to also cook these things and then use them to make a salad. Now, you can think uh, very Mediterranean, but making a wheat berry salad is something that's just awesome. Let's say you've got, uh, I don't know, two, three cups of these cooked wheat berries. Now, these you would want to cook just with water. You wouldn't want to cook them in milk. But let's say you've got them cooked and you put a little bit of salt in, in these. So they're cooked down, they're soft. Now you can toss like a French mustard vinaigrette and toss some vinaigrette in there and you can put in all types of vegetables, a little bit of minced onion, some garlic, some fresh mint. And then you can put shredded carrots in there. You can dice up fruit like uh, cubed uh, cantaloupe and melons, things like that. You can put in... Uh, leeks that have been sautéed ahead of time, and you make this wheat berry salad. And I'm pretty sure I've got a recipe for it on my website, Harvest Eating, but if not, I'll make sure that your listeners get one. But now you're you're talking about an unbelievable sort of like a spa dish. It's going to be low in fat, um, really nutritious, filling, and have great flavor. And what's even more important to me is the texture. People don't pay a big uh, – they don't pay enough – mind to texture and cooking and these wheat berries they've got incredible texture and when you put that french mustard vinaigrette and then all of these other things like onions and garlic and maybe some sauteed leeks and a little fruit 
and some fresh herbs in there, you've got an incredible meal, and it's great for a picnic. It can be made ahead of time. You can you can take it out for a picnic lunch. You can also use it as a bed to put, let's say, a piece of steamed fish over it or a piece of grilled chicken or, heck, even a steak. So make like a, a berry salad is an awesome thing to do. And you, you can also do the same thing with lentils. I'll throw that in there, like whole lentils cooked and tossed in a mustard vinaigrette is a great thing. But um, let's also switch gears from the wheat berries uh, to, to wheat itself. You can you can grind the wheat, like take your grinder and grind it. And then you can make, everyone knows about cream of wheat or uh, farina. And it's just another way to make a hot cereal. And I would do the same thing. I would heat up a little bit of milk and water, bring it up to a boil, and definitely put a pinch of salt in there. Now, people... Uh, may think that salt would be weird in sort of a sweet breakfast cereal, but just a pinch of kosher salt is going to bring out all of the underlying uh, flavors. And that's one thing that salt does, is it makes your tongue uh, able to taste more things. So put a pinch of salt in there and cook the, the ground wheat. And once that water and milk comes up to a boil, you put a little salt in there, you can put some sugar, then you put the wheat in there and you just stir it. It's going to slowly absorb up all of the liquid, and you're going to have uh, like a whole wheat cereal. And, again, you can dress that with anything. You can put raisins on it. You could put a little bit. I like to just take heavy whipping cream once it's cooked and just pour a little bit of whipping cream over the top, maybe a sliced banana, and now you've got a really great hot cereal. So those are a few things that you can do with the wheat. And also I definitely would encourage people to take their, their preps of wheat berries Learn how to grind it and learn how to make breads and muffins, pastries, things like that, um, because making bread is a critical thing to do um, with wheat berries. And, and I just actually shot a video the other day, Jack. I'm going to be posting it, and I'll make sure your listeners have access to it. And it shows a very simple whole wheat bread. Now, this one does have some bread flour in it, which is uh, not a whole grain, but it also has... Um, whole wheat. It's about 33% whole wheat. And you can make bread that's just killer if you use, um, you know, freshly cracked whole wheat. And, and that's another so thing. So what you're people, doing there, just so I, I get this, because I think this is pretty much what I do. You, you're doing about a third of it from fresh ground. And then you do right. two thirds of your typical white bread flour. And that lightens it, but it also lets you use your wheat and it brings that nuttiness and, and all in there because pure whole wheat bread can be kind of heavy. So you're bringing the white flour in to lighten it, but you're keeping it. And instead of just using off the shelf ground six months ago wheat flour, you're bringing that fresh ground wheat in with the, the off the shelf white flour. Right. That, that, that's uh, exactly right. And like you said, it can be, you know, if you use all whole, uh, all the wheat, you can make a hockey puck, but I've also found that the majority of that sort of hockey puck or, or heavy texture that you get with whole wheat is happening because the wheat is old. And I've tested this before where we did an episode of our TV show, um, and it was based on whole grains, and we, we featured a company, I'm going to point this out to your listeners, called Anson Mills, and it's uh, A-N-S-O-N, Anson Mills. They're in Columbia, South Carolina. And the guy that runs this operation, his name is Glenn Roberts, and he is, uh, he's like part historian, he's a, he's a seedsman. I mean, this is one of the most interesting guys I've ever met. And he, um, he has people all over the country growing different grains from them, and they're all heirloom crops. 
And when we interviewed him, he sent me home with a bag, a five-pound bag of what's called red fife, and it's a type of uh, heritage uh, wheat. And he ground it right there in front of me, and I took that wheat home, and I was testing bread recipes with it, and side by side, I would use whole wheat that came in the five-pound bags from the store. And the difference, Jack, I mean, I'm telling you, night and day, the stuff in the store would produce that dense sort of hockey puck, terrible bread where the freshly ground wheat from this guy or even stuff that you do yourself would rise up very predictably and make a beautiful loaf. So a lot of it has to do with the, the wheat just kind of being old. So Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with using pre-ground because the wheat has a tremendous shelf life. But when you, it's like coffee. Uh, you can go buy roasted coffee, and if you grind it yourself, you get a much richer uh, aroma, a much richer flavor. If you buy wheat and grind it yourself, I think you'll find that. Then I don't know if, if, you, if you've tried this, but one of the things I've done with any time I'm making bread is, is running the flour through a sifter. Um, and even sometimes I've double sifted it. It seems, and I don't do a lot of the kneading and yeast breads. I do like. Um, beer breads and Irish soda bread, and I get a lot. If you do sift the flour and make one, and don't sift the flour and make the other, um, you see a big difference there as well. Yeah, no, it definitely helps to lighten it up. But um, yeah, whole grains are, are really awesome, and, and uh, I like uh, using those wheat berries. And you know, I got to tell you, like the, that uh, the wheat berry salad is just awesome. I mean, somebody would try that. It's such a refreshing dish. It's loaded with texture and flavor. It's a great way to use those those wheat berries, and you know people need to know how to cook with these things because you definitely don't want to have to cook with them and then be figuring it out. But perfecting bread is definitely key, and I do a lot of bread. And this video that I'll post will show people how to do um, it's any kneading. It's kind of like a no knead bread, and I bake it right in a, a heavy cast iron pot in the oven. And it's great for toast. It's got that really dark crust and, you know, the whole nooks and crannies thing with the melted butter lodged in there. Just incredible. I mean, I actually had it this morning with uh, a fried egg. But, uh, yeah, wheat berries are versatile, and, and, you know, you can't say enough about the nutrition. Awesome. Well, let's 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 kind of keep the ball rolling here, and let's talk about chard. Um, I've recommended that everybody grow Swiss chard, and any, everything from you eating it to if you grow backyard rabbits, having it for rabbit food, because once you get it established, it's a biannual, and if you can overwinter it, I mean, it just keeps coming back, and you can keep adding plants every year, and you can basically have a patch of chard going forever. It's hardy. It handles winter. It handles summer. I mean, it comes in all these great colors. You can even plant it in your plant. It looks good in a, you know, mixed in with a flower bed because you've got the golden varieties, the ruby varieties. But a lot of people have said to me, Jack, what do you do with it? Uh, and I do a variety of things with it, but I knew you could come up with something maybe unique. So what can the folks that are growing all that chard I've been telling them to grow uh, do with chard? Well, what I love about chard, like you said, is it's definitely easy to grow and it can take the cold weather. There's a load of varieties of chard. I mean, you, you mentioned a couple, but there's tons of of uh, varieties, but chard is really versatile, and you know, like the wheat berries, these type of vegetables, they are loaded with nutrition. I mean, chard and things like kale and collards, I mean, they've got all kinds of calcium and vitamin A, they're very healthy for you, but what I like to do with chard is I love to saute it, and if you take chard, and what you'll want to do is you don't want to take out all of the stalk, 
mean, people sometimes they, they take their chard and they just remove the entire stem and then they just use the kind of wilty leaves. And that's fine, but you can eat those stems. They take a little longer to cook. Just slice them up fine. But I like to keep some of the stem there. And a great dish to make is think about garlic, onions, and bacon. I mean, everyone listening is probably going to have, uh, you know, their mouth watering. But if you take a, a pot and you put in some extra virgin olive oil and a touch of, of butter and then a couple of slices of bacon, right? And you want a little of that fat in there to help the bacon start to render out. But fry the bacon up, and once it starts to get golden brown, throw in your Swiss chard, and you'll just basically chop it up. It doesn't need to be um, anything, you know, fancy with the cut, but slice it up and put the chard in there and turn the pan up pretty high and let it let it saute pretty hard. And you'll want to add salt and pepper, but you've got olive oil, butter, bacon, minced garlic, minced onion. You've got your chard. You want to put some salt and pepper. If you like spicy, you can definitely put a little red pepper flake in there. But let that saute for a few minutes. And then what I like to do is put a little bit of chicken stock in it, cover it, and turn the heat down, and let that uh, simmer for a little bit until it gets tender. There is no better... Um, side dish than that sautéed chard like that. And again, think of think of it as a bed on your plate for a nice steak or maybe a piece of roasted chicken or even some wild game or fish. That is one incredible way to cook chard. And you can do the same thing with kale. You can do the same thing with collard greens. Another thing I like to do, Jack, with um, that recipe is once I've got the the chard cooked down. And, and when you do these things, you've got to remember while it looks like it's a lot, they, it cooks way down. So people need to be prepared that make a lot more than you think you're going to eat because once you cook it, it's really going to shrink down. But I like to cook uh, a bunch of it in that same manner. The bacon's optional. You don't have to use the bacon. But once you've got a bunch of it cooked down, what you can do is make little souffles out of it. And what you want to do is you're going to make uh, you're going to take a bowl and you're going to whisk in uh, eggs. Try to get some. Try to get eggs that come from your neighbors because these eggs anymore in the store. I mean, these things are a joke. And, and I've done videos before where you compare a real egg next to a store egg. I mean, it's night and day difference. But hey, you get real quick, eggs, I wanted to I wanted to point this out. If you are growing chickens for eggs and you have anywhere near the space for it, what you've got to do, folks, is plant a mulberry. Um, if you look at eggs from chickens at the time of the season when they're eating the mulberries, the yolks are almost red. And I don't know what it does, but it is the richest, most amazing organic egg you will ever eat, uh, a chicken that's been feeding on mulberries. And they love them, and the damn trees produce so many. You can feed your chickens for about two months with mulberries falling off the trees. And I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but that's one of them things, if I don't say it, I'll forget. No, that's a good point. I mean, these, it's the same thing with you and I. I mean, you're definitely, you are what you eat. And you can see the difference between a chicken that's locked up and fed cheap corn and just lousy grain to one that's allowed to go out. And chickens are omnivores, so they eat all kinds of stuff. And, um, getting those rich jokes is going to make your souffle that much better. But continuing on, let's just say, and I'm going to give you guys a recipe for this, so don't don't take out your pencils, but just think in your mind. You take, you know, like six or eight of these beautiful uh, egg yolks. Separate out the whites. Just use the yolks. Whisk these things up. And then what you can do is take your cooked 
um, chard and mix it in there and then put in a good cheese. And I would recommend something like Gruyere, which is a, uh, it's a raw milk Swiss cheese. If you didn't have that, you could use something simple like sharp cheddar. But um, make that mixture and uh, put a little bit of Parmesan cheese in there. And once you take that, put it into greased ramekins or small. You could do it in one big, um, like an enamel cast iron dish as well if you didn't have ramekins. But I like to cook it in um, in a serving size ramekin, something that you would see like creme brulee come out in. And make six or eight of those, and then you want to cook it in a water bath. And that's called a, a bain-marie. And what it basically is is taking those those custard cups or ramekins, you put them inside of another container and put a little bit of boiling water in there and then bake these off in a slower oven, about a 300-degree oven. And in about 25 or 30 minutes, they're going to set up, and because you've got those egg yolks in there, they're going to want to uh, raise up a little bit. It's not going to souffle like a big, a great one, but it'll, it'll rise up a little. And the combination of that slightly bitter chard, those rich eggs and some you know, sharp cheese like that. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I make that stuff all the time with, uh, and I serve it as a side dish with other things, but chard in a, in a souffle like that's incredible. And you can also use it in a stuffing, um, like cook it down like I just mentioned. And, and let's say you take a chicken breast and you make a pocket in there. You can mix some cheese in there, a little bit of breadcrumbs and stuff it inside of a, a pork loin or a chicken breast and then roast it off. It's just incredible. I mean, this you mentioned so a soup when you sent me an email about chard. You mentioned a soup. What do you, what do you got in mind with that? Cause I, I think it might be a clone of like one of my favorite restaurant soups from, uh, uh, what is it? Olive Garden. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I was just about to go there. Yeah. Do you think about, um, I would do, let's, let's say you go to the store and you buy, uh, buy a chicken and buy the whole chicken because when you buy, a lot of people just buy chicken breasts, you get ripped off. Buy the whole chicken, take that chicken, rinse it off, make sure there's nothing hidden in that pocket, no yuckies inside the, the carcass. Take it all out, rinse it off and put it in, in a big stock pot and then fill it up. And this is key. You want to fill it up with cold water, not hot water. Fill it up with cold water and put some vegetables in there. Some, if you have leeks, cleaned leeks are great, an onion, a carrot, a little bit of celery, a few peppercorns and a bay leaf. And then slowly let the thing come up to a simmer. And what you definitely don't want to do, you don't want to boil it. Let it come up to a simmer and watch it. Because if, it, if it's boiling, you're going to have a cloudy kind of uh, nasty stock. But let it simmer with the lid on for about an hour. And then you can take the chicken out. And you can use the chicken itself for anything. You can make chicken salad. You can make burritos with chicken, all kinds of things. But the point is you've got a rich homemade chicken stock. And just so your listeners know, the difference between a broth and a stock is the use of bones. If you just used meat, if you just used chicken breast and there was no bones, you would add what would be called broth. When you add the bones in there, now you've got stock. And what's great about the stock is there's gelatin in bones. And when you cook that chicken for a good hour, you simmer it really slowly like that, the uh, gelatin, which is very healthy for your body, is going to get into that stock. So now once you've got that stock, then you'll set that aside, and then you'll take a pot, and you're going to simmer, you're going to saute, excuse me, onions and garlic with a little bit of carrot and celery. And once you get a little bit of, of color on that, just start the color, throw in a bunch of um, raw 
chard that you've sliced up and washed. And definitely be careful with chard because it grows, you know, in sandy soil. It's got a lot of places where dirt likes to hide. You want to give it a nice, uh, careful rinse in cold water. Anyway, you put your, um, put a bunch, like a lot, and you really fill the, the pot up with this sliced up chard. Let it saute for a little bit and then cover it up with the chicken stock you just made. Make sure you're seasoning this with a little bit of salt and pepper and then take two to three russet potatoes. Don't use any other kind. Don't use red, red skinned or Yukon gold. You want the russet potatoes because they've got a lot of starch. Peel them and put them in. You only need to have them. Put them in halved. Let's say you have, let's say four potatoes. You cut them in half. There's eight pieces. You've got the broth the aromatics, and the chard. Put a cover on that, let it come up to a boil, then turn it down to a simmer, and let that cook for about an hour. And when you're done cooking it, take the lid off and take your potato masher and go in there and just press down and mash the potatoes. You don't want them, you know, totally mashed. You just want to break them up, and they're going to break up because they've cooked for a while. And then, Jack, you serve that, and you can put a little bit of Parmesan cheese on that, or you can... Uh, you can float some extra virgin olive oil in it. Let's say you put a big bowl of it. Just take your your really incredible uh, extra virgin olive oil and put a little drizzle of that over top with a little pinch of good Parmesan cheese, and you have an unbelievable dish. That chard with its slight bitterness and all that nutrition, it's really deep and green. you got the homemade chicken stock, the potatoes that are kind of uh, – that they're broken up because you didn't dice them, you didn't cut them perfectly, you let them just kind of uh, get soft and you hit them with a masher, they're going to have all that gorgeous irregular texture, you've got some aromatics in there, it's unbelievable. You want to talk about a good warming soup, a charred and potato soup like that with stock that you make, it can't be beat. You see, every time I bring you on this show, halfway through the show you're just killing me, and I wonder what I'm going to cook today. I, seriously, I mean... You're the only guy I know I can bring on to talk about wheat and talk about making wheat cereal and to make me hungry. Um, and, and that's awesome. And that's what I'm saying is, folks, we, if we get creative with this stuff. And the other thing is, you guys are always asking me, how do I share prepping? How do I get people on board with what, what, what we're doing? Well, if you bring them over to your house and you serve them that, uh, it's going to lead to the question, how the hell did you figure this out? And, well, I grew that out in my yard, and maybe even you grew your potatoes or you got them from the local market or whatever. And, and it, when you start having conversations about how to put together meals and you start talking about the components, it leads you into, well, you know, we grow a garden. This is part of And also what would be an uncomfortable um, spreading of the message becomes very comfortable because food is the most social uh, the, the best social lubricant I know of. If we can get people eating together, we can have all kinds of great conversations, and uh, I'd love to have some conversations over a bowl of that soup. Let, let's move on, though, because um, so i got a lot of stuff here I wanted to talk to you about today. I also have a lot of folks out there that I've kind of encouraged, get out there, get that 22 or that 20-gauge or that 12-gauge, learn how to hunt, go out there and feed yourself. And uh, I don't think, it, you know, there's a lot of things you can hunt in, in some areas but not others, like pheasants. There's limited places you can hunt for pheasants and all, but just about anywhere in the United States, people that are going to go out there and small game hunt, which is a great entry into the, 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 the sport, are going to have access to either squirrels or rabbits or something damn close. You know, it might be something, maybe it's a marmot. Uh, but whatever you can do with a squirrel, you can do with a marmot, folks. It might sound a little weird, but uh, the, the, these small animals in this this common uh, genre, they all have very similar flavor profiles. So I've got a guy out there with a mess of squirrels or a mess of cottontails. Keith, what are some ideas 
you have for that? Well, coming from the south, um, we've got a, a famous dish down here called Brunswick stew, and um, it's kind of it's kind of funny, but it's one of those recipes that people, you know, it comes down through the through the family, and they put their own spin on it. But basically, a Brunswick stew is like a tomato-based stew. It has different in it, whether it be butter beans or you could even put lentils in it. But it's basically like a tomato-based stew, and oftentimes you're going to see it made with uh, squirrel meat or rabbit. Sometimes people put uh, pork and beef in it, but it's definitely best. It's definitely best with squirrel. And you know, like you said, I mean, squirrels are everywhere, and those little things taste incredible in a Brunswick stew. Their meat has a, a pretty good richness to it, and this is an easy-to-make stew. Um, and you can find, you know, we'll link up a recipe, but there's tons of different methods to make it, but it's just like any other stew. It needs a long cooking time to get everything tender, but it needs also to be highly seasoned. And it's, um, you know, with a tomato base, you can use different stocks for this. You could use chicken stock. You could even make squirrel stock with the bones. just depends how creative you want to get there. But people definitely around here, particularly in, like, northern Georgia, Western North Carolina, the upstate of South Carolina. Brunswick stew has got a long and storied tradition. I actually worked for a chef um, at the Biltmore Estate uh, years ago, and this gentleman, I think he was from Georgia, and he was a huge fan of Brunswick stew, and I, and I remember him making it, and, uh, boy, it's so good. Have you ever tried it? Yeah, yeah, squirrel stew is, is huge with me. Um, I've been making different variations thereof for um, as long as I've been old enough to put squirrels in the pot. In fact, probably before I was doing it myself, um, my you know my my brother my, my uh, not my brother my uh, my dad and his brother would go out and in you know small game hunt. And uh, they mostly hunted for grouse and pheasants, and, and they would shoot squirrels and rabbits as they came across them and bring them home and clean them. But they were just kind of like they'd throw them in the freezer and, you know, maybe throw them in a browning bag and throw them in the oven. And I'd always heard about this stew, so I kind of took my stew recipe from, like, the way my grandmother would do it with beef, and she wasn't about cooking up rodents. So I just watched what she did, and I would cook rabbit and squirrel the same way. And one of the big traditions in kind of the northeastern woods with, with uh, I, I don't think we really called it Brunswick stew up there, was very similar, is we would take a rabbit and three squirrels maybe, and we would make a combination of those. And it was kind of, you know, whatever you happen to have. If you had a bunch of rabbits, you'd do it with rabbit. If you had a bunch of squirrels, you'd do it with squirrels. But if you had both, you'd, you'd do a mix. And there is a difference in the meat. Um, I think it's the person that eats it often that would be able to tell you the difference when it's in pieces off the bone floating in the stew. But the rabbit has a lighter, closer to, they say it tastes just like chicken, it doesn't, but closer to chicken. And the squirrel has maybe, I don't want to say gamey, because that gives people the wrong idea, a richer, uh, darker uh, uh, taste. I guess rabbit's yeah. more akin to white meat chicken, and squirrel's more akin to, to dark meat chicken, I, I guess. But um, Yeah, that's how I would say it. It's kind of like a, it, it has a sort of like the chicken thigh sort of thing going on, and, and uh yeah, I'm me, I mean, I think chicken thighs are way better than breasts. So. I agree. I always like the darker meat. The other thing I've done with squirrel and rabbit both, and rabbit you can get away with just straight doing it if it's a young rabbit, uh, but an older rabbit or a squirrel, um, you really, what you really want to do is if you have a good old-fashioned pressure cooker, 
pressure cook them for about 15 minutes to, to tenderize them some, and then roll them in whatever you would fry chicken in, whatever your fried chicken recipe might be, and fry them till they float just like you do a piece of chicken. And you want to, with, with squirrel and rabbit, it's a big animal, so obviously you want to, you know, especially rabbits, you want to quarter it up into, you know, individual size pieces. But that's a real simple, and I mean, I fed it to people that, like, the only reason they knew it was squirrel is because you got this little weird shaped leg, you know, instead of a drumstick. Um, but if you can get people to give it a shot, uh, generally I haven't met anybody that would like a piece of fried chicken that wouldn't like a piece of fried squirrel or fried rabbit. No, I, I agree. It, it, it is, um, you, know, you got to think about people don't understand. We mentioned earlier about you are what you eat, but nowadays any kind of meat, when, when it gets commercialized and big business uh, takes it and, you know, locks it up and starts feeding it things that it generally was not supposed to eat in nature, you know, the meat tastes different. But a squirrel, I mean, look what it's eating. I mean, it's eating all kinds of nuts and, and uh, grasses, just things that are loaded with nutrition to start with. So the meat has got a lot of richness. It's got a lot of protein in it. And uh, it's just loaded with flavor. I mean, it's a great stew. And, and like you mentioned, it's it's got that slight gaminess, but... That's a that's a good thing, in my opinion. Definitely. And, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. Um, I don't know the name of it. I guarantee you, you do. But there is a type of ham, uh, it, it is, I think it's Spanish, the, the, the hogs are these black hogs, and they're fed on acorns. And it's very expensive. Yeah. I, I can't remember Serrano. where it's called. It's called Serrano yeah. ham. It's, it's extremely expensive. Like, you buy, you know, the people in, in Spain, they go into these, like, we have, like, a, a beef jerky shop. They have, like, a ham shop. And they go in and they buy a piece of ham, cut off the ham uh, for a snack. And they it's, like... You know, American equivalent of like $19 a pound for this ham from a street vendor who's slicing one small piece off and handing it to you. And the the thing that makes that ham so amazing, a big part of it is that huge diet of acorns. Well, you shoot a squirrel in uh, October, November, December, January, it's an acorn-fed animal. And it's not the same thing, but there is something about animals feeding on acorns that makes the flavor of the meat Better. I, I was talking about this recently, I think, on the show, where I grew up in a place where we had really two kind of areas we would hunt. We had farmlands and we had woodlands. And if you hunted, even like venison, uh, out in the woodlands uh, where the animals were uh, browse-fed and acorn-fed, compared to the one they're, they're not being like fed like they do down here in the south with a deer feeder, but they're raiding the farmer's field and eating the shell corn. The, the, the animals from the farmlands had a lot of fat. Uh, the squirrels, the rabbits, deer, all of them, more fat on them. When you, and it's not the intermuscular fat like beef. You'd skin them and they'd have huge fat reserves kind of floating outside the muscle between the skin and the, and the muscle. Up on the mountains, the animals were less fatty, but it wasn't the fat to me that was the difference. It was the diet itself. And you could literally take two identically sliced, uh, pieces of venison side by side and look at the acorn fed animal and look at the animal that's living on the farmlands and getting a large portion of its diet from corn and soy and other things it was raiding from a field. And you could see a difference in the texture and the color of the flesh. The, the stuff from the, the mountains was a darker red, a denser texture, and it came through when you cooked it. Especially, you got to be careful with game. You know this because you're a classically trained chef and all. I know this because I'm a country boy that eats this stuff. You, you can't overcook it. You can't get paranoid with game and think because it's game, it's less clean, and it needs to be cooked until it's gray. And that's, I think, a lot of people that have eaten venison or, or any kind of game and said, I really didn't care for it. It's because the person that cooked it was freaked out about it being game and murdered it with heat. And your, your comment about the difference in the quality of the meat, I feel much safer eating squirrel or deer off a mountaintop 
than I do a chicken from a processing plant. Where people, you generally see that directly the opposite, but I guarantee you folks, if you took one trip inside a chicken house, you probably yeah, never, never eat it again. Unless you ate organic, free range chicken, you'd never even pick up a piece of chicken again. Um, it, it's horrific. It's disgusting. And then people turn around and they look at it and they go, I'm not eating a squirrel. And uh, I'm looking at about six of them hanging off my feeder right now. And, uh, you're making me hungry. I might gamble a couple of these guys as soon as we're done with this, uh, episode. But great stuff there. What about fishing, man? We were talking about trout and, and stuff like that. You got a trout stream near you. So I'm sure you're, uh, you're doing some, some fish cooking. What do you got there? Yeah. And, uh, again, the same theory of the feeding of the fish. I do not eat farm raised fish because they're, uh, you know, they're, they're fed for profit and they're fed for certain look and appearance where a, a fish that's in a river is going to eat what it's supposed to eat. Yeah, we live on a, a year-round pretty good trout stream called the Mills River, North Mills River. It comes right out of Pisgah National Forest. And uh, I can see the river actually right now. I look out my uh, – I'm in my bedroom at the moment, and the river is literally about 50 yards away, and uh, it's loaded with trout. And there's browns, there's rainbows. And I love to fish for trout, and you can catch tons of them. I mean, you could catch – in this river and all the rivers up here in the Blue Ridge Mountains, I mean, you could catch 20 trout in an afternoon pretty easily. Now, a lot of people catch and release them, which is great, but there's so many things you can do with trout, and there's so many great recipes for trout, and, and the same thing with bass and, you know, crappie, whatever, whatever you can catch, there's a way to cook it. And, of course, these aren't salmon. You know, you're not going to get a trout that's, you know, where one side of it is four pounds or something. It's a lot less uh, flesh, but it's delicious. And, you know, trout can be done, I mean, there's hundreds of ways, but one of the things I love to do with trout is I, I love smoking, and probably a lot of your listeners are into barbecue and, and all that. I've got a number of different smokers, and what I want to do is go out and go fishing and try to catch a good bit. You know, let, let's say you and your friends go out, and you can get 25 trout. Take the trout, you know, take the heads off, scale them, gut them, leave the tails on, and then uh, butterfly them open. And I like to slow smoke them. And I like using a combination of apple and oak. And down here uh, in the in the Blue Ridge, we've got loads of oak. And here in Western North Carolina, there's quite a bit of apple trees. Here on my property, I think we've got five or six apple trees. Some of them are are uh, dead and need to be replaced. But I always harvest the wood. We cut one down in the fall, and I take that wood, and it, I set it aside because it's incredible to smoke on. So you take those trout, and we've got, uh, if I can plug, we've got a, a new product that's coming out, Harvest Eating. It's called Low and Slow Competition Barbecue Rub. And it's a combination of organic spices that I've put together. And you take this, and let's just say you take your trout, and you just rub some of this um, this herb and spice mixture on it and then smoke it over oak. I like white oak and apple. And it doesn't take very long to smoke trout because it doesn't have much weight to it. But if you smoke those trout and then you, you uh, let them cool off and peel the meat off, you can do a number of things. You can make trout tacos, tr- this, you know, smoked. Smoked trout tacos, smoked trout burritos. There is nothing better than smoked trout pate, and what I'll do is I'll take a bunch of that smoked trout, and then I'll take heavy cream, and again, I like to use 
um, cream that comes from grass-fed animals. We buy only raw milk, and it comes from Jersey cows. And you take that cream, you put it in a pot with some garlic, and I would like to use something like tarragon. Put in a sprig of tarragon, a little bit of garlic, and maybe a touch of minced onion, and let that, with some salt and pepper, let that cream heat up. you got to watch it. You can't go off and check your email because it can catch fire. But let it come to a scald, and then turn the heat way down, and just let it scald for about 15 or 20 minutes. And what you're doing is creating an emulsion. And you also want to let it reduce. You want to get as much of the moisture out and cook it until it starts to thicken up a bit. And then you pour that mixture through a strainer, and then you want to cool it off, right? And once it's cool, take your trout, put in a food processor, and uh, whiz it up a little bit. You want to put in um, that cold cream. And you got to put it in a little bit at a time because if you dump the whole thing in, you, you might have too much. So put in a tablespoon at a time and let the food processor whiz it up. If you don't have a food processor, you can certainly do it with a potato mash or something like that or even with a knife if you're uh, pretty industrious. But make a mousse out of it. And what happens is it's got that smoke from the wood that you did, and then the cream was infused with the aromatics and the herbs. And you don't have to use tarragon if you don't like it. You could use thyme or even basil. But you make that smoked trout mousse, Jack, i got to tell you, there is nothing better. You have your friends over. You talked about being social and, you know, getting people interested in being more sustainable. Have people come over for a little dinner party, and you can take that wheat we talked about. You can make some gorgeous crackers out of it, or heck, you can buy some crackers, and you serve people some uh, smoked trout pate or mousse, whatever you want to call it, and it's got that richness, that smoke flavor, and then you tell them that they came out of the local stream and you did it all yourself. I mean, you're a rock star, and the food is incredible. I mean, it's so easy to make that. You can you can use all different types of trout. You can even use salmon if you're able to catch them. I mean, some people that are listening are probably in areas where they can fish for for, um, for salmon. Salmon, uh, lake trout, can... things like that. And then for us down here in the south, because we do have some trout down here, but it's like for two months when it's like cold. And then they're like little bitty ones, and then they die as soon as it warms up in April. Um, everything that Keith said about trout with smoking them, some fish don't smoke well, but catfish, you got to skin them, unlike the trout where you leave maybe the skin on. Um, but catfish smoked, you can do all of that with it. And catfish smokes, it, it's one of the best fish for smoking there is, in my opinion, because it's got enough fat in it to handle the smoking without drying out. Um, so that that sounds awesome. One thing I've done, you can do this with trout, you can do this with any fish. We fish a lot around here for a fish called white bass. I know they've got them up your way, but we've got them down here where literally if we're going to stick a dynamite, you can probably catch a 1,000 uh, in 15 seconds with, with a rock and a piece of tape. I mean, they're just swarming our lakes. And they're a fatty fish with a different kind of fat, and they do not smoke well. Um, they're great for frying, uh, same with striped bass. Uh, but one of the things we've done with them, we just have a few, and we don't want to really, you know, batter them up and all. You just take them and fillet them, and then you use either olive oil or butter and brush the one side with them, and, and you know, a little bit of herbs, salt, pepper, whatever you want in there. I usually do like basil, salt, pepper, and a sprinkle of paprika, and just throw it straight. Well, you got to leave the skin on to do this. Throw those fillets straight on the grill. Good hot grill. Never cover it because you'll overcook it. And just cook it till the, the skin crisps up, almost like a little bowl you're going to eat the flesh out of. And just, just I mean, that as simple as it is, um, you know, and that can be done on a campfire. 
Yeah, no, that that uh, you mentioned the striped bass here in the in the uh, like the upstate of South Carolina. There's uh there's lake called uh, Lake Hartwell and um, Lake Joe Cassie, and they're loaded with those uh, those striped bass. And that's a versatile fish. I like the ideas you were mentioning. We um we love to fry it. I mean, there is fried fish is awesome, and and uh, striped bass is so good fried and. We used to, um, up on Cape Cod, my brothers have a boat up there, and in the summer we go up there, and, and there's a short window where you can catch striped bass, um, but those things are so good. The, the only problem with it is if, if you're not there in time, you wind up catching nothing but bluefish. Yeah. But bluefish lend themselves really well to the recipe I just described. Smoked bluefish are awesome. But um, taking striped bass, what we used to do is we would catch these things, we would fillet them right there on the beach, and we would go right home and make uh, striped bass sandwiches. And we basically just make a light beer batter with a little tonic water and uh, a little bit of beer and some either rice flour or uh, all-purpose flour, and then fry those things. And you know, just put them on a homemade bun with a nice thick slice of uh, fresh summer tomato, a little bit of uh, cheese, like a piece of uh, jack cheese and some uh, chopped up lettuce, man. There's nothing better than that. I love a fish sandwich. I want to talk about dehydrated vegetables before we move on, though. i got to throw one out on the fish. If you ever just want to, folks, be a little bit indulgent with frying fish, take an egg, egg, you know, egg dredge and dredge your fish, your fillets and egg, and roll it in good shredded Parmesan cheese. And then you got to fry that at like a lower temperature, like 300, 315, or it'll overdo it. But basically, you end up with this crusted egg uh, batter with Parmesan. And, I mean, if you want low-carb, that's as low-carb as it gets. But it's not, it's not something I would eat every day. Um, in fact, we do fried fish. A lot of times we'll do, like, good old-fashioned cornmeal batter, maybe some tempura batter, and this. And we do them all, you know, at the same time in different batches when we have a bunch of people over. But that's one I just wanted to throw out there. I don't know if you've ever done anything with frying with Parmesan on it, but... I didn't believe it would work, and my, my good and late friend, Hal Dodd, God rest his soul, showed me that one because he was big into the low-carb stuff, and I'm like, that can't possibly work. I figured the cheese would just melt away in the deep fryer, but it doesn't. Um, the big thing with it is you, and I think a lot of people would have more success with their frying, Roll, do your egg dredge, do your roll, put it on a plate, stick it in the refrigerator for about 15 minutes or, or 30 minutes or even longer before you fry it. And it seems like more of the batter stays on the fish if you do that. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, even um, battering it up and then putting it in the freezer for 30 minutes before you fry it. But one thing to point out with the Parmesan cheese is, and bear with me, my little my little son has just come in. Hey, sweetheart. No um, worries. He's welcome the, on the show, too. Yeah. He's, he's a survivalist. <laughs> One second. You can't cry when I'm trying to have an interview. Sorry, Jack. Don't worry about it. Take um, care of what you got to do. I, I haven't edited yeah, he's, he's okay. One thing with the uh, the Parmesan cheese to note is if you buy the stuff in the green can, which I definitely don't recommend, what they're doing to that is they put, you'll, you'll read in there, it'll say anti-caking agent. And they use cellulose. And cellulose is, is basically... Um, they get it from harvesting corn stalks and, and all types of starch, and the cellulose keeps it from caking. But if you use that and you fry with it, it burns. 
Absolutely. Uh, if you're going to use Parmesan cheese, sorry, Jack, hold on. No worries. If you're going to use Parmesan cheese, grate it fresh or buy, you know, the real deal stuff that doesn't have the anti-caking agents in it. And then it is, it is great. It's also awesome for like, uh, oven baked chicken. You make a batter, um, and you put, I mean, a breading, excuse me, and you put, uh, Parmesan cheese in it. And then you do baked chicken. Ah, oh, awesome with some fresh, uh, herbs in there. Makes a great, great snack. Absolutely cool, man. So we're, you're getting at the end of an hour here. Let's, I wanted to, I did want to talk a little bit about dehydrated vegetables and using those with some cooking ideas as well. Uh, before we wrapped up today though, because again, I've got so many people gardening now. Uh, I know from just feedback, we have tons of people that have gone out and bought, you know, Excalibur dehydrators or have built solar ones in their backyard. They're putting up large right. amounts of vegetables. And again, that's great, but I get a lot of great results cooking with them. And I don't want people just because they'll store forever, not using them. I mean, if you're growing food, you're doing all this work, you're putting it up, and then, you know, it's January, and it's hard to come by some fresh-cut peppers uh, that are that are local and all, but, you're you know, you're not going to make a salad out of a dehydrated pepper and eat it raw. It just doesn't work out. A lot of stuff you can cook with it, though. You got some stuff for us on that? Yeah, that, that's another great point. One thing, people that grow gardens, um, the, the one thing that's really helped harvest eating grow, the site, and, you know, myself as a, as a chef is that people are always looking, they get panicked because they're not prepared. Gardeners, particularly new gardeners, they don't realize that when you plant a zucchini plant, for instance, or even a bell pepper, I mean, those things are going to put out tons and tons of, of uh, vegetables. So a lot of people are scrambling, how am I going to use it? And they let them, number one, grow too big. But then number two, they just, don't have any culinary inventory, and this is what yeah, real I'm quick. To teach I got to I got to say this real quick. When you mentioned the zucchini, sure. growing up in Pennsylvania in August when the harvest was heavy from the zucchini, it, it was a small town. Nobody locked their cars, their house, or anything in all except in August. Because if you left your car unlocked or your house unlocked in August and you weren't home, somebody'd show up with a bag of zucchini to give you and leave it there. And everybody had it in excess, and dehydration wasn't something we really practiced at the time. So um, you're dead on about that. So I'll let you go. I just wanted to tell tell everybody that because uh, it's to drive home the point of how much a few zucchini bushes produce. No, that, that's for sure, and, and uh, it's one of my favorite crops. But um, yeah, you, if you if you're prepared ahead of time, let's say you're going to grow um, three or four vegetables that are good to be you know dried or canned. Just knowing what you're going to do with it ahead of time is key. But like you mentioned, a lot of people are drying uh, vegetables, and they definitely need to be stored properly. After they're dried, I like to um, seal them up in cryovac and make sure they're dried, but then they're cryovac to keep the air off of them. But there's a lot of great things that you can make with those, and you got to understand that when you take, just like a dried mushroom, when you take all of the liquid out of a vegetable it obviously becomes hard, but then when you rehydrate it, it doesn't go back to its sort of normal state. It'll still have a slight, uh, sort of like a chewiness to it, which I find really awesome. Now, one thing I like to do with an assortment of dried vegetables is to rehydrate them and then use them on top of a pizza, like a homemade pizza with um, dehydrated vegetables that have been rehydrated and then put them on a pizza with some melted cheese. They've got a much better texture. They've got that kind of chewy thing going on. Another thing that they're great for, and this is another what I would call a jump-off dish. 
you when you start to get into harvest eating and you're starting to learn about seasonal cooking, a dish like uh, risotto, which is a classic Italian peasant dish. I'm sure you've had it before. Uh, it's funny. You go into restaurants now and you pay 20 bucks for a, a bowl of risotto. I'm sure the Italians are laughing their butts off because it's it's the cheapest. You know, it's just a grain. It's rice. It's a wide rice. It's grown in what they call the Po River Valley in Italy. And it's what sustained all the peasants. But it's a great dish for harvest eating because... You can once you learn how to make risotto, you can use all types of seasonal vegetables, and I definitely encourage. We've got recipes and videos up on the website. We'll provide links, but I encourage people to learn the basic recipe for risotto because then you can use things like these um, dehydrated vegetables, and you can just rehydrate them right in the risotto pot. But you can use leeks, you can use asparagus, you can use mushrooms, butternut squash. Kale. I mean, just about anything can go into risotto and make a really nice dish, but I love the dehydrated vegetables. Um, and I'll have like zucchini, onions, bell peppers, mushrooms, things like that go really well in risotto. They're great in soups. You can take dehydrated vegetables. Remember we talked about making a nice uh, chicken stock? You could do the same thing with, with uh, beef bones and make a beef stock, but floating those dehydrated vegetables in a nice broth, like maybe with some egg noodles is a great thing. Also, they make an awesome uh, vegetable burrito. Take black beans and a bunch of rehydrated, you know, mixed vegetables, and once they're um, back, you know, to their, they're rehydrated, they get a little plump, and they've got that chewy texture. They're awesome in a burrito, like with black beans and cheese. Really That's great, great because we got so many people storing legumes and different beans as part of their store. So now you've got your dehydrated vegetables, your dehydrated beans, something maybe we wouldn't normally see going together, and you could do a burrito with it. I guess if you store corn, uh, dried corn, and you grind that, you make your own corn tortillas, you could do more of a uh, an enchilada-type recipe with it as well. Right, and then uh, another thing I like to, to make, um, again, another uh, great seasonal sort of base recipe is uh, what I call confetti rice, and it's basically long grain rice. It's cooked with um, a little bit of butter and salt and then put in a bunch of, um, you know, rehydrate your vegetables. You don't want to put those in rice not rehydrated because it will suck up too much of the water, but once you rehydrate those, just put some boiling water over them, drain it out, and then mince them up. You know, you can use carrots, bell peppers, zucchini, things like that, and then Put them into rice, and instead of just having plain white rice, you've got rice that, number one, is cooked with a little butter, but then has all these colorful vegetables that came out of your garden. And you can make that year-round. That confetti rice is a great tweet. You know, we eat a lot of black beans and rice around the, the snow household, and uh, you've got to make rice taste good. I mean, it's such an easy, and a lot of people store rice, too, but having a way to cook with it, again, increasing your culinary inventory, trying these things. That's what I encourage your people to do is try these recipes now. Don't wait until you're forced to kind of cook on your own. Get into it. It's social. It's the best thing you can do for your own health is to learn how to make these dishes, these soups, these stocks, these rice dishes. All this kind of stuff is going to make you much healthier. It's going to make you a proficient cook, and you're going to be focused on the seasons because that's what's critical um, in my mind, should things get bad, I'm hoping they don't, but should they get bad, 
the term seasonal cooking is going to become front and center. And people that don't have this culinary inventory that I talk about, those are the ones that are going to have the, the roughest time. You need to learn how to cook with the fruits and vegetables and the game and the grains that are local to you, and you need to be prepared. You know, I know you're a big gardener, Jack, but you probably can foods. You probably dehydrate foods. Absolutely. So you're, yeah, you got to plan ahead of time. That way when you have a crop, you're going to have things to do with it. One, one of the things I'll, I'll kind of totally uh, go off track here, but we're looking at a, a Jersey cow, and I went to see it um, just last Saturday. It's about a four-year-old Jersey cow that most likely we're going to buy and uh, put it out here. But when I start to milk that cow, I'm going to know ahead of time how to make um, butter, which I know how to make, yogurt, which I know how to make, creme fraiche, cheese. So I'll have a way to use up these valuable resources. And, you know, you mentioned um, beef and, and grass-fed beef. The, the folks that have this cow, they also raise beef. And that's another thing for, for people. Um, think of the amount of resources that go into raising beef in a traditional way. These feed lots, all the trucking, the processing, it's a very unsustainable practice, and the meat really isn't any good. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, no, cows. It's, it's not. You go and you go to the, the, the nice, expensive supermarkets, and you see the beautiful red meat. That red color is not what that meat looks like. They've added coloring and, and blood back into the meat with Asians to hold the blood in the meat. If you go to like your, your supermarket, you see that nice piece of steak, and you go down to where the manager has the specials where they're clearing the meat out, where the meat's been there a week and they need to get rid of it, the color that that meat looks like, that, that drained color, that's what the pretty one looked like, too, before it was treated. Um, you get real good quality meat, it looks like that. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make it look like that. Um, there is, there's so much garbage. And I hate to put it that way, but there's so much garbage in our food supply. And I can't say that, you know, we're realists. So I can't say that we're 100% organic with all our meat use. But we try to, to get as much free-range, grass-fed, organic meat as our diet as we can. We hunt, we fish, we bring the garden in so that, when we are eating the piece of chicken that came from the normal shelf, it's the exception rather than the rule. And we feel so much healthier uh, and so much better. And, and on your comments with the, the dried vegetables, one thing I want to throw out there is when you're cooking with them and you're putting in the soups and all, it's real logical that you just dump all the, 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 the vegetables in the water they soaked in in there. When you're doing something like a pizza, which I've never thought of, but or anything where you're reserving the water that the vegetables rehydrated in, and you're not because you're not going to dump the excess water on top of a pizza, obviously it's going to make it all watery. That juice that comes off of those vegetables, put it in a jar, put it in the refrigerator, use it the next time you cook. When you rehydrate vegetables next time, folks, especially if it's more than one, it's like some peppers and carrots and celery or whatever. Taste the water after the vegetables have rehydrated it. The flavor that you have there, you don't want to throw that away. It's so valuable to cook with. And another one I'll throw out that I do all the time, I'll go and I get, you know, pull out my dehydrated vegetables and go, what do I feel like today? Some mushrooms, some celery, some some pepper, some onion. Throw that in a little dish, rehydrate it with water, and then make an omelet with it. I mean, it's so simple, and I can actually eat peppers from my garden in February then. You know, and that's something yeah. that normally I wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, that's a great point, and that's one thing that us chefs are taught to do is, um, 
you mentioned the liquid. You know, when you go, a lot of people will steam broccoli or, you know, cauliflower, whatever you do, that steaming water, or even if they boil it, that water has got a lot of nutrients in it. It's got a ton of flavor. Definitely reserve that to make soup with. And, you know, with dehydrated, we've I've got a line of uh, pasta sauces called Thoughtful Harvest. One of them is a sun-dried tomato sauce. And we we have the uh, these meaty sun-dried tomatoes, and when we rehydrate them, we never dump that liquid. All of that liquid goes right into the kettle, and that's why the sauce tastes so, I mean, it's like an explosion of tomato flavor because we don't dump the liquid. The liquid is, is key. And uh, I wanted to jump back over to the to the beef, Jack, because you're, you're making a lot of good points. And if you look at, um, like I said, the way that beef is produced being so unsustainable, um, and you talk about buying the beef in the store, one thing that the listeners could be aware of is if you go to the supermarket, there's going to be some beef in there that's prepackaged, and that's the beef that's branded, you know, and I'm not going to mention the names, but it comes in a little styrofoam pack, and it's got the plastic over it, and it's got a label, and it's it's a company. Those are definitely the ones to avoid, particularly in um, in the big store, we know what the big store is that's all over the, the country. Don't buy the meat that's in their trays. Those styrofoam trays, that's the stuff where they, they definitely, they use like a technology where it goes under pressure and they force that kind of red liquid in there to make it look red like that. Because if it doesn't, meat in a couple of days will start to go grayish brown, but they want it to look red, so they're, they're definitely chemically enhancing it. But the way to avoid it is don't buy the stuff that's branded and packaged. Buy the meat that looks like it came from the back where they sliced it up and put it in a regular um, tray. But stay away from that, you know, plastic-covered meat because that's, uh, that's definitely the, the bad stuff. The worst of the had, worst. Yeah, it's the worst of the worst. I had got a couple steaks from this guy um, the other day, and we had, uh, we had a ribeye, and uh, I broiled it. I put... Um, I put some of my uh, my steak seasoning on it, and I broiled it. Man, it was really good. And a lot of times people aren't used to, like, a grass-fed beef, something that's not locked in a, in a feedlot and, you know, fed a ton of corn. It's not going to have the fat content. It's going to be leaner. And um, you don't want to overcook it. Like you said, you, you know, you, you want to cook it lightly. Get a nice, nice char on the crust, but then have it rare, and that's going to be a much healthier meat. And uh, oftentimes it can be overcooked and dry, but I cooked this this uh, ribeye and I broiled it hard. I mean, it was two or three inches from the elements in the oven, and it had a nice crispy sear on both sides, but it was nice and tender in the middle. And, you know, think about deer. I mean, a deer, as long as it's a healthy deer, that thing is eating its natural. They're browsers like goats, and they browse on all kinds of grasses and leaves and twigs. That's a healthy meat. It's not locked up in a feedlot and just jammed full of corn and other garbage. I mean, you wouldn't believe what they feed, uh, what they put in those feedlots, those those feeding operations. Uh, I met I, a trucker one time. Unfortunately, on I know. I, I know what they put in there. I, you know, because I've seen it. And I mean, I don't think people realize this. Cattle come from northern Europe. They they all go back. All these different breeds of cattle that we're using for meat animals. That there's some that are out of the sub-Saharan Africa area and stuff like that. But most of what's become the cattle that we're growing today have their roots in the white ox of the, the European forest. The cattle are supposed to live in the forest. They're supposed to come out to the edge of the forest 
and, and browse the edges and live on acorns and things and everything out. And the cattle cow, love this stuff. They basically spread, they're the animal that spread the forest. They would keep, uh, eating away at the edges of it and then, you know, manuring it and fertilizing it. And they were actually the, the, the catalyst that spread nutrient and grew the forest. They're not meant to live on corn in a feedlot standing shoulder to shoulder. It's not a natural state for the animal in any conceivable fashion. And to think that they're going to produce the quality of meat for you that they would in a natural environment where they're free range is insane. It's like expecting to, to, to get water out of a mud puddle and have it taste like water out of a spring. It's just not going to happen. No, it, it, that's exactly right. It, it's, and people, you know, they don't really want to, they don't want to hear it and they don't want to kind of see what the truth is. But those animals, they were not raised, they're not, um, designed or whatever. Some people believe, believe in, in, uh, intelligent design, others in evolution, whatever you believe in. You can, you can say to yourself, a cow is not designed, like you said, to be jammed into a muddy feedlot and to be eating corn. It's just not what the what the animal is meant to do, and and that produces a very acidic rumen. Cows are uh, their ruminants; they like to chew their cud, and when that rumen, when their stomach has too much acid in there, the animal is constantly in a state of sickness. That's definitely not what you want to do with a deer or an elk or buffalo, whatever it might be, even cow that's out on the grass and, like you said, along the edge of the forest, eating some leaves and and um, nuts and things like that, the meat is much healthier. There's a company called Caw Caw Creek, and it's C-A-W-C-A-W, Caw Caw Creek, and this is a guy named Emil DeFelice. He's in uh, St. Matthew, South Carolina. I've interviewed him for my TV show. He raises pork, and your point is well taken. These these uh, pigs, they live in the forest. They, they can come out and get a little grass, but they're basically a forest animal. And I've been there to see these pigs, and they're unbelievable. I mean, they're scratching their bellies on the trees. They're eating uh, grubs and worms and hickory nuts, things like that. And this guy's got this pork, and it is just it's world-class stuff. And he ships it through the mail. You can buy, I think it comes in like 50-pound packages, but you can get all different cuts. But, again, you try some of this pork. And then you try some of that lifeless stuff that you get in the supermarket, and the difference is night and day. And I'll throw something out there. Uh, again, being a realist, sure, I eat pork from the supermarket because I can't, um, you know, buy this other stuff all the time. But when you are going to buy pork from the supermarket, a lot of people are buying pork tenderloins. Definitely don't buy the ones that are pre-marinated because they're um, they're just pumped up. God knows what the hell's in there. Yeah, the cheapest crap. I know what's in there. The cheapest crap they can get, and they're probably full of sugar too, because sugar and fat together are addictive, and that gets you to come back and buy more from you know whoever it is that packaged it up. Um, It's uh, it's pretty nasty the 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 state that we're in today. And I've always found this crazy. Uh, You got these 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 hog farmers, and they're using antibiotics and immunizations and all this this additives to the feed to get the pigs to grow fast and to be healthy, right? Because they don't want them sick and falling over and dying. And then we got ranchers in South Texas, and they would look at a farmer that says he has to do this to keep his hogs healthy, like he's insane, because they cannot eradicate them. They're running around out on these ranches in this harsh environment. 
They have nobody looking after them. Uh, they, they fight all the time, the boars do, and, and I've seen the boars pick up the piglets and throw them, and they've got these wounds all over them when you shoot them these scars. They're perfectly healed. You can't kill them. They're absolutely bulletproof, but they're living in a natural state. And then we wonder why when we cram 80 of them together in one sty and, and we keep them in an environment that they, that they create for themselves in the wild, that they go to to cool off or get insects off them, and we keep them in that environment all the time, you wonder why they're sick, why they spread diseases, why we have to keep pumping all this crap into them to keep them at a good growth rate, where out in the field, the sows are dropping four or five litters a year of six to 12 piglets, and, and I don't even understand why we farm pigs the way we do. It doesn't even make sense to me. Yeah, coming from North Carolina, this is, uh, this is hog heaven here, and, uh, luckily I live in the western part of the state, but down east, uh, along the Cape Fear River and all down there where there's a bunch of these hog farms, I mean, it's a pretty sad situation, not only for the pigs, but the people that live around those places, because it's, uh, the amount of waste and these lagoons filled with liquid manure, pretty horrible stuff, but, you know what, let's, uh, let's, let's switch up the, uh, the talk here, because we're, we're making people not hungry. Think yeah, about yeah, that yeah. And, think about that charred and potato soup and a nice, uh, how about some, some smoked trout pate and a glass of wine? Let's, let's close like that, Jack. Absolutely. Or let's go ahead and take that good organic or wild, uh, hog. Let's make some hot, nice, spicy sausage out of that and let's add that to your chard and, uh, potato soup and, uh, there you go. husk it with it. And I think that would just, Throw it absolutely. It goes from a side dish to the dish, and just throw it over the top. So yeah, I do want to um, kind of wrap things up now. So as we're wrapping up here today, I know Keith, you always kind of like want to leave stuff behind for the audience. You uh, you come up maybe a special on on, on a, a sauce or a, a seasoning, and you usually give a, a discount on something or another, or tell people to get your book. And you gave out all these recipes. You kind of have a, a way you want to do that to make it easy for everybody this time. Yeah, well, why don't I do this, Jack? I'm gonna. Um take all of these recipes because they're kind of all over the board and rather than have people, you know, search and try to find them, I'm going to put together a Word document that has all of the key recipes that we spoke about and then uh, they can just, uh, we'll, we'll, um, you know, you can put it up on your site or whatever and then they can just download it and they'll have all those recipes in one document. That's all. And then I definitely want to, I want to mention to the listeners that I put together uh, some great specials. If you click on the, the ad because I'm now one of your sponsors. If you click on the ad on the on the TSP homepage, you'll see Harvest Eating there. We've got some um, pretty steep discounts for the memberships there. Some of them have like even 50 bucks a year off, so they're they're uh, pretty good deals. And uh, also, we'll we'll make available this this Word document that way uh, they can try out all these recipes. Great, and I'll put a link to that document and a link to uh, your site and all some other stuff you've got on there. Uh, I definitely highly recommend your book. You've got an awesome book that's available. They can buy it on your site. They can buy it from Amazon. Uh, if they buy it on your site, it, it, you, you ship it directly. Do you do anything with autographs or anything like that? Or Yeah, if they want to order it off the of Harvest Eating, um, and I'll have a link on there. If you click from the ad from uh, the TSP over to my site, there will be a link for the book. But I'll definitely... Uh, personalize it and autograph it and ship it directly to people that buy it. But, yeah, the book is really great. I mean, it's my own book, and, you know, obviously I wrote it, and I, I see it all the time, but uh, the emails that come in from people that have that book, uh, they just love the book. It's a really great book. It's a big book. It's like 300 pages. So it's kind of like the seasonal cooking Bible, if you will. So I definitely uh, I think people will be thrilled with the book, but we'll, um, we'll sign those and ship them direct. 
And I want to throw a plug in for your spices, your, your pre-mixed spices. Uh, I, I ordered, I think, two, and you doubled it for me because we're taking care of each other here, two entrepreneurs. And I got four sets of them, and I gave away two, and I kept two. And you mentioned your Montreal steak seasoning, and I, that is probably one of the best steak seasonings I've ever used in, in, in my life. I just had a listener stop by the house, and I made up some grass-fed ribeyes we did on the grill um, that I, I coated on both sides with that Montreal steak seasoning. That is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the herb to province stuff is, is, is really awesome too. Uh, actually all of it's good, but those are the two that I've, uh, kind of played around with the most. And I don't know, man, when I, when I tried the Montreal steak seasoning, I, I was like, that's Montreal steak seasoning, but I almost know if you, you, you can call it something else because when people hear that, they think of the little thing from McCormick that comes in a jar or something like that. And <laughs> yeah. it, there's, there's, there's a relationship there, I guess, because there's some of the same ingredients, but, it's a very divorced relationship. It's so much more fresh and the peppers and the salt, they, they come through on the meat and it, um, you know, I get the grill like lightning hot and, and sear the steak and it just goes into this caramelized black crispy. And you said make people hungry at the end. I'm doing my best here and, uh, making myself hungry. Probably eating steak tonight now. Um, I need to go take something yeah, out of the freezer. Great. They're awesome herb and spice mixes and, and the key thing about them is they're, they're also 100% organic, and they don't have fillers in them. A lot of these companies that – I won't mention the name that, that you just did, but they put in a lot of fillers in there. Starch. And because – yeah, starches and, and anti-caking agents and uh, – A lot of sodium glutamate and other crap. Yeah, yeah. Too, much, too much salt, MSG. These are pure seasonings. And, and like you mentioned, the, the, there's seeds in there and whole spices and – You'll find cumin seeds. It's just really incredible stuff. I wanted to mention, um, we do, with our membership on the website, if anybody uh, decides they want you know, complete access, uh, we've got a couple of plans. And two of the plans, not only do you get access to the website, but we mail you a box of goodies. And uh, we've got an annual plan where you get some of the Thoughtful Harvest pasta sauce, and I think you get three full-size bags of the spices and the membership. And then we also do a lifetime uh, membership, Jack, and with that, you get lifetime access to the site, and you also get a signed Harvest Eating cookbook, four jars of Thoughtful Harvest pasta sauce, and six full-size bags of spices, and we just really put that up, um, and your your listeners get a $50 discount on that, and that's been really popular, so that's kind of a, a great way to experience the, the whole thing, but yeah, those spices are, are killer. As a matter of fact, when I go back in the house, I'm standing on the front porch right now. My mom has got a pot of uh, split pea soup on the stove, and mm. she's got some of my northern Italian uh, spices in there, and it's got oregano and basil, a little bit of dried porcini mushroom. Oh, it smells great. Now you're making me want to cook split pea. Uh, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook something as soon as I get off the air with you here today. Um, we are going to wrap up now, folks. Chef, I'm gonna, uh, Chef Keith, I'm going to want to bring you back on. I've got some other stuff I want to talk about in the future. I'm not going to let you go into it now because we'll go for another 20 minutes and, and we'll be way, way over time. But, like, I want right. to have you come back on and talk about I'm, I'm growing fava beans right now through the winter and a lot of other cool stuff. So maybe we'll look at next month bringing you back on uh, using things like chives in your winter cooking and onions and stuff like that. I know you've got 
got stuff for that. I appreciate you being here today. And, folks, I definitely Chef Keith is one of the good guys. Um, check out his site. Check out his membership options. Check out his recipes. It's not going to steer you wrong. And he's a big advocate for the seasonal eating, for good quality food, and all this thing, avoiding the GMOs, all the stuff we talk about. Uh, so, again, uh, Keith, thanks for being here with us today. Hey, Jack, I appreciate you having me on. I look forward to uh, that with you, Ben. And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening and, and uh, just wish everyone well. Okay, folks, with that, um, we will wrap up now. Uh, this is the Jack Spirico today, along with Chef Keith Snow, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The revolution is you. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you.